The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Reading today is from Mark 4, 35-41. On that day when evening had come, He said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Abby, for reading that scripture for us. Okay, I love this passage of scripture. I love the question that the disciples ask Jesus. I love the irony of the question that they ask Jesus. Don't you care that this world is the way that it is? This is the world we live in. We live in a world where thieves break in and steal. That's right, Jesus said that. We live in a world where moths devour and thieves break in and steal. It's a world where bad things happen. On March 19th, 1990, St. Patrick's Day, by the way, at 1.24 a.m., two men who were dressed as Boston police officers um, lured the security guards of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum there in the Fenway neighborhood of Boston. They lured them away from the only alarm button in the building and then tied them up in the basement and spent the next 81 minutes loading 13 pieces of priceless art into a car waiting outside. And then they trundled off into the darkness, and those works of art have never been seen since. It was the largest single property theft in American history, worth an estimated $500 million. Hannah Huben, who is one of our own here at Cool Springs, actually has written a series of 13 poems about those 13 works of art, so you should reach out to her and ask her for those if you want to see them. Uh, It's beautiful stuff. But one of the most prominent works of art that was taken was Rembrandt's Storm on the Sea of Galilee, which is this picture right here. I stood in the back of the room to look at the quality of this picture. It's, It's rough. But I will say this, if you do a search on your phone, you're welcome to. Uh, it's also on my own Instagram and Facebook page if you want to find it there uh, to get a little bit better of a picture. I won't judge you for looking at your phone or think you're playing Candy Crush. But this is, we're going to talk about this, this painting. Um, this one was stolen, and it wasn't, it wasn't just stolen, but it was, this, this painting is about... Uh, five feet high by about uh, 
three and a half feet wide. It was, it was cut from its frame with a box cutter. And the frame is actually still on the wall of the museum there um, because that, it's, a, it's a fascinating story why that frame is still there, but, but uh, that's for another time. Anyway, you can, if you go to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, you will see the frame in which this painting hung and then just the empty wall behind it. The Storm on the Sea of Galilee is Rembrandt's only known seascape. Uh, and it's one of his most dramatic paintings. And it, what it's doing is it's capturing that moment right after the disciples knew that they were going to die if Jesus didn't save them and just before he did save them. So this is the moment that's here. And everybody who looks at this painting or who had the opportunity to look at this painting before it, it went missing, when you look at it, you'll see two things. You'll see two groups of people and then a third kind of outlier. The first group of people would be the people as you're facing it on your right. And that's about half the disciples who are all trying to wake Jesus up. The disciples on the left are all trying to keep the boat afloat. And they're in the middle in the blue, uh, which you can see better on your phone, but it's there, is a man standing with one hand on a rope and the other hand pinning his hat to his head and he's looking right at us. He's looking at the viewer. And that is Rembrandt. He painted himself into this painting and he, the artist, is looking at the viewer in this moment. And so when you look at this painting, what you see is you see Rembrandt looking out through the frame, looking us dead in the eye, and he's got the same terror on his face that everybody else does, and they're asking the question, and he's asking the question to us, don't you care that we're perishing here? And I like to think that there was a moment where the thief with the box cutter made eye contact with Rembrandt when he was cutting this frame as his blade was going around the canvas. I wonder, did they, did they lock eyes? By painting himself into the boat, Rembrandt is saying something to us. And what he's saying is this. He's saying that he believes that his life, his life will either be lost in a sea of chaos or it will be preserved by the Son of God. And those are the only two options. And by peering through the storm and out of the frame to us, he is asking us, are you not in the same boat? Many of us live portions of our lives, some of us large portions of our lives, paralyzed by fear. Fear, it just, it, it comes in waves for some of us. It's ever present for others of us. Today's text is telling us the story of a moment of paralyzing fear for Jesus' disciples. And so I want to get into their world a little bit to un unpack what's happening in this moment. First, geography. So the Sea of Galilee sits 700 feet below sea level. Did you know that? The sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. The Dead Sea is 1,400 feet below sea level. So that is a, that's the, it's, it's, the Sea of Galilee is almost the lowest point on the face of the earth. The Dead, Dead Sea is the lowest point. Just uh, to the north, 
of the Sea of Galilee is Mount Hermon, and Mount Hermon rises uh, about 9,200 feet in the air. And what would happen is warm air from Galilee would then crash into the uh, cool air of the mountains, and it would create kind of this wind tunnel that would run right over the surface of the Sea of Galilee, and it would, and it would create these sudden, severe storms. It still happens to this day. It's like this big wind tunnel where there's all this pressure that comes in. And so the disciples who were in this boat, they were fishermen on the Sea of Galilee, most of them. That was, for many of them, their profession. Because it was their profession, they knew about these storms. They knew that they came in a hurry. They knew that they were lethal. So the Sea of Galilee was their workplace, which means in order for that to be their workplace, they had to be a brave lot. They had to be tough people. And so they knew what these storms could do. Why does that detail matter? It matters because we learn a lot about this particular storm by this particular disciples, by these particular disciples' reaction to it. That they know what's happening. It's not that they're unsure, it's that they're certain <laughs> of what's going to happen. They weren't wondering if they were in trouble. They knew that they were in big trouble. They, were, they basically were a 747 over the ocean and the engines were gone. And they knew that that was what was happening. And we can be like this, right? We can have, I call them sacred fears. The fears that we have in our lives that if somebody wants to kind of step into that fear and try to help us, our reaction is, get out of here. <laughs> don't, don't try to talk to me about this. You don't even know what you're talking about. You don't know me, right? We have these sacred fears. All of us have them. We have things that we just, we are sure if they happen, they will destroy us. And so I ask, what are yours? What are yours? Maybe COVID has has brought some kind of bubbling to the surface, the fragility, the tenuous nature of your situation. And the question is, are you in a fragile situation, really? Or, or is it tenuous? And you may be thinking, as I even say those words, get out of here. <laughs> but we have these things, right? These sacred fears. And the reason we have them is because, and I don't think this is our fault, but we have a small view of what it means to live and what it means to perish. We have a pretty contained view of what that is. It's, it's a narrow view of the world and our place in it, and we're filled with blind spots. Though Scripture frames con life in the context of eternity, we, we evaluate our living and our, our dying often according to the calm and the storm. A lot of times we evaluate our lives based on how things are going. How was your week? I had a number of people ask me that even this morning. How was your week? Because we, th we think, and by the way, keep asking that question. I love to be able to answer that question, but it's a funny question, isn't it? How was your week? There's a lot of weight in that. Well, this week was complicated, or this week was hard, or we got a puppy. We, d we got a puppy this week. It was a little, little thing. Did you know puppies, their claws and their teeth are like hypodermic needles? Like, it, it thing is dangerous. But we do this, right? And, and so, we, we, we kind of live between the things are okay and things are not okay sort of, sort of moments. So, a bill comes that we can't pay or something breaks that we can't afford to replace. And we just feel certain that ruin is just imminent. 
right? That, that, that my washing machine broke, and that's the end of financial solvency for us for the rest of our lives. You ever feel that way? Or, and it's so clear to us, right? Or, or maybe you're in a relationship, and it's a relationship that, that it either needs a wedding or a breakup, but, but you don't want to be alone, and so you, you just, you're, you're paralyzed in there. Or maybe you've, you feel like you've lost control of your health, which is really an illusion, right? Having any control over your health is... I mean, we can have some control over eating well and exercising, but, but in the grander scheme of things, it's, it's a bit of an illusion to think we have control over ourselves physically. But we can lose control of our health and then, and then lack the knowledge to fix it and not know what's going... And we can spiral in those moments. And what we want to do is we want to shake Jesus awake and say, do you not see what's happening here? If we're spiritual people, we're going to wonder where God is when things are not okay. And we see in this passage that these disciples, they were followers of Jesus. They had separated themselves from the crowd in order to follow Jesus. It's why they were in the boat. But if you're going to do that, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, it means you have to trust that Jesus knows what he's doing. And in this particular storm, what Jesus was doing was he was sleeping. He was sleeping in the stern when the disciples woke him with this question, don't you care? Don't you care about what's happening here? But when they asked that question, Jesus awoke and he said to the storm, quiet, be still. So basically like he was speaking to a child, he said, be quiet. And the storm and the sea, Scripture says, obeyed. They obeyed. Became like glass. In those days, people regarded the sea as this uh, utterly unmanageable force, this, this power. To go to sea meant you could die at sea. You were at the mercy of this impersonal, unstoppable force. Pagan gods of power were gods of the sea, right? This power, unbridled. And yet Jesus commands it. He commands the sea, and not only does he command it, but it obeys. And when he commands it, he doesn't invoke God's name. He doesn't invoke the name of another. He just speaks to it as though it's his. And what does it do? It obeys. And then Jesus says to his disciples, as though they should have been up to speed on this, why are you afraid? Where's your faith? And this is the moment where the disciples' fear really took over. Because it was terrifying at first, but how did they respond? Look at what they did. Mark says that when that the disciples transferred their fear of the storm that they were sure would kill them to an even greater fear of Jesus who was commanding the storm. Why? Well, Tim Keller says it this way. He says, In his, by his actions, Jesus is demonstrating, I am not just someone who has power. I am the power itself. And anyone and anything in the whole universe that has any power has it on loan from me. I think it's fascinating that the disciples were more terrified of the calm than the storm. Why is that? Well, 
Hebrews 10.31 says it this way. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Because it's one thing, and this is where I think, this is where I'm wanting, please engage with me on this. Because the message of this story that's happening is not, there's this storm that happens, but don't worry, everything's going to be okay because Jesus is with you. That's That's a good kind of moral fable, but the way that the story unfolds challenges us on a deeper level. Here's how. The disciples were more terrified of the calm than the storm because they had fallen into the hands of the living God and it was now on display. Because it's one thing if the problems and the changes in our lives come from something like a storm. It's just this blind, impersonal, unloving, unknowing force that doesn't really have a mind of its own or anything like that. But it's quite another if we discover that our trials and our changes are happening under the watchful eye and maybe even coming from an all-loving, all-knowing, all-powerful being who loves us with an everlasting love and is calling us to draw near to himself. Why is that harder to process? It's harder to process because it means there's nothing random about your trials. There's nothing random about your trials or God's role in them. And this flies in the face of a premise that many of us hold when it comes to our relationship with God. And that is this, if you love me, you wouldn't let things like this happen to me. I can get there so quick. I think I, I, think I default to that, right? That, that Jesus, the deal is, <laughs> I follow you and you spare me from trials, right? So when storms come to somebody who thinks it's Jesus' job to stop them, what Jesus is saying in this passage is your premise is wrong. I do allow people to go through storms all the time. But you don't need to fear because those storms are not the power. I'm the power. Well, then we have to decide what we think about that, right? Does that make you mad at God? If you trust in a God who is powerful enough to be upset with when storms come into your life, then you also have a God who is great enough and powerful enough to have reasons that you can't understand. And Tim Keller, again, says you can't have it both ways. You can't have a God who's powerful enough to be mad at because he didn't stop a storm from coming, but then say he must not have a reason. See, when an impersonal storm comes, safety comes from getting away from it. The storm doesn't know you, but for the Christian, when Jesus is Lord of our storms, the goal isn't to get away from it, it's to do what they're doing here on the right side of the boat, and that is to get near to him, is to draw near. Why? Because he loves me, and because he's promised that all things work together for my good. It's under the banner of those truths that he loves us and all things work together for our good that he sends storms that upset us, that shake us forward, that dismantle things that we've spent a lot of effort building. Listen, Jesus never promises to defend himself for the storms that he allows. He lets things happen 
that we don't understand. He does things that don't make sense to us. And sometimes that means a thief cuts a painting from a frame, rolls it up, and drives away with it into the night because that's the world that we live in. But here's the thing. Just because you don't understand why God does something doesn't mean that God doesn't have a reason. And in fact, it is arrogant to say if something doesn't make sense to me, it must not make sense at all, right? The safest place in the world for these disciples in this storm is in that boat. In that boat, in that storm with Jesus. It's the only place where they're really safe is with the one who has the power, who is the power, who controls things like storms. Does Jesus care that we're perishing? Don't you care? Don't you care? I do like to think that for a brief moment, the thief and Rembrandt locked eyes face to face as his blade was tracing this frame. And I wonder, you know, if this thief grew up around Scripture, maybe he grew up in the church, I don't know. Maybe he sensed that Rembrandt was asking him, what the disciples were asking Jesus. Why are you letting this happen? And we ask this, right? We think we see the whole picture. And it sure looks like Jesus is missing what is so obviously plain to all the rest of us, right? That he's just asleep. On what basis can we trust that he cares for our perishing? Well, the disciples didn't have an insight into something that we do have an insight into. And that is the reason why Jesus was there in the first place. And that was they were waking the second person of the Trinity. That's who they were asking this question to. They were, they were waking the second person of the Trinity who had come in the flesh for the very purpose of laying down his life to save his people from their perishing. That he was there at all. Spoke volumes about his concern for our perishing. See, his disciples and all humanity were in a much greater storm than the winds that tossed that boat on that sea. They were in a worse storm than that. It was a storm that would sweep him away on the cross to ensure that we could live. On the cross, Jesus gives an answer, a resolute, chilling answer to the question, don't you care that we're perishing? If he did not abandon you in that ultimate storm, do you think he would abandon you in the midst of the smaller storms that you face now? And when I say smaller, that's not to minimize them. It's to put it in the context of the cross and the resurrection of the second person of the Trinity. He will not abandon you. Not only that, he has promised to return soon to still all storms for all eternity. 
I don't know what storms you're in. I feel like I only know some of the storms I'm in, right? They can come up suddenly. But I know this. I know that the love of Christ for us in the midst of our storms is unquestionable because of the incarnation. He knows us. He knows you in your storm. And he doesn't need you to understand all that there is to see in order for him to love you perfectly in it. You say, yeah, but if I only understood, then my faith would be stronger. But here's the thing. It isn't the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith that saves you. And the object of your faith is the one who has the power and the authority to say to a storm, be quiet, and it obeys. And he is enough. He's enough. Even the wind and the seas obey his voice. So in your storms, do not be afraid. He knows you and he loves you and he's got you. Pray with me. Lord, I pray that the Rembrandt painting would reemerge. Uh, it's been 30 years, more than 30 years since it was taken. It's likely destroyed by now, but but uh, be nice to see. Father, we thank you for the promises that we have from your word here of the ways that you relate to your people, of the ways that you have this power and the authority to still these, these forces that, that humanity regards as, as unstoppable, as overwhelmingly powerful. But you speak a word and they obey immediately. And so, Father, help us in that. Help, help our unbelief. And Lord, help us to see that the storms are, 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 that, that we face in our lives, we don't have to look at them and say they're not storms. We can look at them and say they are and acknowledge the difficulty of them and the burden we feel even in them. But give us the grace and the faith to take a step or two beyond that, to know and to trust that you are more powerful than those things and that you love us and that you work all things together for our good. And we thank you for this. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, that was fun.